This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The pandemic has thrust telehealth into the spotlight. Many patients uh, tuned into telehealth because of stay-at-home orders and the limited in-person doctor appointments. But providers are facing challenges like the lack of broadband access, technology, and training. That's why the Freeman Foundation, Hawaii Community Foundation, and HMSA have partnered to provide $1.3 million in grants to 14 federally qualified health centers across the state to boost telehealth service. Chris Van Bergic is Senior Vice President and Chief Impact Officer at Hawaii Community Foundation. She spoke with HBR's Jason Ubai about the grants to boost the telehealth capabilities at community health centers. Community health centers or federally qualified health centers, uh, these are community-based health centers and organizations. Um, They're spread across the state. We have 15 of them, so we have at least one in every single county. And they provide um, comprehensive primary and preventive care to what we consider medically underserved areas. So these are some of our really rural or really vulnerable populations. And they provide a range of services. They'll provide behavioral health services in addition to primary care. Sometimes they provide pharmaceutical services, dental services, substance abuse treatment, tobacco cessation. So it varies from organization to organization. Because they serve vulnerable and rural populations and communities, We really felt that the Hawaii Community Foundation partnered with the Freeman Foundation and HMSA to take a really hard look at how we could help those organizations better utilize telehealth. Uh, With COVID, a lot of people were really told to stay home, be careful going out, um, especially if you um, have um, vulnerable health conditions. So it really meant that a lot of these health centers that were slowly expanding their use of telehealth, they sort of, you know, leapfrogged over probably two to three years um, and accelerated their adoption and their use of telehealth and teleservices to their patients. So um, what we wanted to do, and it was really, you know, sort of the catalyst was the Freeman Foundation And the folks there that, you know, wanted to see how they could help. So we got through some help with uh, HMSA. They helped us really look at the issue, understand the issue, put a request out to all of the health centers to apply for grants and their grant applications. They told us what they intended to do with the funds, how they would um, use the funds to expand their services, you know, and what the impact that they thought they could have in their community. The range of things included improving connectivity, uh, purchasing more, more tablets and phones and devices. Um, it included sort of software. It included new data platforms. You know, it included um, equipment that people could use at home, like remote blood pressure cuffs and things like that. So it was a wide range of uh, expenditures that each organization wanted to do. Do you see this trend even after the pandemic passes and there is a widespread vaccination? uh, um, The need for telehealth services uh, for federally qualified health centers? I think so. I think the pandemic has probably opened the door you know, into telemedicine, and I just don't see that we will go backwards, and hopefully we won't, because I think, you know, it creates a lot better access for people that are in rural areas, people that might not have access to transportation. I think we saw through a lot of the applications that there was a pretty significant uptick in using telehealth for behavioral health appointments. We also um, learned that for many health centers, it reduces the percent of no-shows of their appointments because it's just once they get on there, it's much, much easier to dial into your appointment than it is to 
figure out how you're going to get a ride there or drive there. And so I just don't see, I don't see us going backwards. In addition to patients being comfortable with telemedicine, I think the providers also have a certain level of training and adoption and buy-in that they are also wrestling with. So, you know, for a provider that's used to seeing everyone face-to-face, it's a big transition also. So I think some of the health centers, you know, are spending a lot of time making sure that they get their providers comfortable um, with, you know, that approach also. So it's really a two-way street. And I think, you know, we were happy to provide some funding because, We feel like it's really going to, you know, the best thing it does is increase and improve access for folks that really need it. You know, now that we've really, you know, addressed the telehealth issue, we are also taking a look at how we can support the community health centers and that whole network with um, the role they're going to be playing in vaccination. So we're probably going to be doing a similar kind of uh, grant program where we reach out to them and figure out you know, what are their needs so that they can you know, start stepping up their rate of vaccination. So that's our, our next plan. That was Chris Van Bergic of Hawaii Community Foundation, who talked with HPR's Jason Ubai about recent grants to community health centers to boost their telehealth capabilities. Later in the hour, we'll hear from the CEO of a community health center about how they use the grant money. NHPR's Jason Ubai continues our conversation with Dr. Emmanuel Kintu, CEO of the Kalihi Palama Health Center, about its telehealth system prior to the pandemic and how it used the grant money. Prior to the pandemic, we had toyed with the idea of doing telehealth only to establish that we have the capability to do it, but we had not really done it. So in a way, we, are, we were laggards when it comes to telehealth. We had established that we can do it, but we had not done it. So we did know the ins and outs. We knew what the feds had uh, approved. So when the pandemic hit, we started uh, the discussion about telehealth. We did go quickly to the platform that we had uh, looked at earlier, and that was uh, something called Doximi. Uh, It's relatively easy to use, and uh, we implemented it. In the beginning, it was uh, slow going. People weren't really interested in doing the telehealth. uh, Many of the things were foreign to people. But gradually, they started picking up. And the way we did it is that when a person came in for services, we made it part of the visit to educate them on how to use the telehealth. So that way, we took away part of the uh, stigma uh, and the fear of uh, technology, if you will. The other thing that pushed us to use it even more were Our providers, we had two providers who had to self-quarantine at home. They thought they had been exposed. They were not sick, but they had to do their 14 days in those days that were still doing 14 days. And we're saying, here is a person who can still see patients, but they can't come into the office. And we said, well, let's try telehealth with them. So it was almost a reverse here, where the provider is at home, the patient is in the health center, they're being supported by the support staff or the whole care team, uh, the care coordinators uh, and the MA, and they're doing their visit that way. Uh, we, we had a few 
glitches here and there. Um, the picture quality wasn't the best, given the tools that we are using. Uh, fast forward to where we are today. The tools we are using give us uh, really good quality pictures. We have some uh, high-definition webcams. So in a situation where the person is in the office and the provider is at home, we can get a really, really good picture. We have sent home some smartphones with uh, patients. Uh, this is still a pilot. Uh, we've sent home some uh, iPads. We've sent home some uh, laptops. Uh, these are laptops that we had used, and uh, they are not as uh, useful anymore, but they can still do the job. And uh, we quickly realized that one of the things that most of us don't talk about when we talk about uh, telehealth was, one, the experience of the people, and two, the security. So to deal with the experience of the people, we had to make sure that there is a good Internet connection. In some cases, we can't help it. In some cases, we can't. In others, we've been able to send people home with the so-called MIFIs. And these have been in critical cases, like we ha if we have a person with a chronic condition who needs uh, regular monitoring, and we have seen that the monitoring and the intervention really helps them. Uh, not being able to communicate with that person is an issue. If we have people that uh, we can tell are pretty vulnerable and they have to take the bus to get to us uh, to minimize opportunities for exposure, we say, why don't you stay at home and just use telehealth? So we've sent home a scale. We have a cuff that they can use for blood pressure, and we have a thermometer so we can get the things that we need to help manage the condition of the patient. With the grant funding that we have received from the, um, the Hawaii Community Foundation, one of the things that we wanted to emphasize was security. So in addition to the experience, there's security. So what are we doing on the experience side? Because all of our internet traffic was going to a hub, uh, sometimes we run into a sluggish Internet. So what we have done is to now say that we will hook up each site directly to the Internet. They don't have to go to the hub. It goes directly to the site. Uh, we piloted it with one, and we found that the experience is much, much better. It's much better for the patient, better experience for the provider and the care team. And when I say care team, sometimes it includes a translator, a community health workers who help translate both language and culture. It would include uh, the care coordinator. Uh, sometimes it would include an extra service. For instance, it could be a nutritionist talking to a person on how it is that they should uh, modify their diet. Or it could be... Um, a person who is uh, talking about behavioral health to try again and uh, assist the patient. Or it might be a social worker trying to get additional assistance for the patient. It might be food. It might be assistance with housing. It might be assistance with bills. So it was a good experience for the whole care team. And so when the question came up, if you had access to some additional resources, what would you do? We said, ah, we would replicate that at our major sites. And it involved some costs with Hawaiian Telcom, but the main cost really is having a firewall at that site, a robust firewall that is, uh, in a way, uh, interoperable with the firewall that we have as KPHC, and then the management system that helps us to manage. Now it's going to be four different firewalls, um, but you want to manage them in such a way that the experience one feels 
at one site is similar to what they feel at another site, or their experiences are similar. So we use the resources essentially to uh, get the firewalls, to increase the bandwidth, get smartphones and uh, iPads. Uh, we ended up getting um, 50 iPads and 50 smartphones, and we did that on Black Friday, so we had an excellent deal <laughs> to get those, th those things. Um, and then we also bought scales, thermometers, and uh, a few oximeters. And the, the oximeters were essentially for people who have been positive with uh, this uh, COVID-19 situation. It's an extra. It is not a must-have, but it does help a little bit, especially when people start having problems. Uh, it is a good way of knowing what their, uh, the, the oxygen in their blood is. We don't use that that frequently, at least the information I'm getting from the care teams. But from time to time, it is a vital kind of thing for us to have. I can say that at last count, and this varies, at last count, we were close to 20% of our visits being uh, telehealth visits. Now, that may be low compared to other people or other uh, organizations. But when you put into consideration the population that we serve, then you begin to see how significant that is, the number of people who need translation. Uh, we have the highest in the state, the number of uh, uh, uninsured folk, which might also signal that they have some problems with uh, transportation, they have some problems with uh, all of the other needs that they might not be able to get using telehealth, but they are compelled to leave their homes to try and go and get some of those resources. That was Dr. Emmanuel Kintu of the Kalihi Paloma Health Center. He was talking to HVR's Jason Ubai about the challenges of telehealth at community health centers. Uh, later this week, we'll hear more of the conversation with Dr. Kintu, who talks about the pushback to telehealth technology. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a nonprofit devoted to conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More about how to volunteer at friendsofhakalauforest.org. Honolulu Civil Beats Reality Check today looks at Hawaii's teacher shortage. Reporter Suvon Lee joins us this morning to talk about recruitment. Good morning, Suvon. Happy Aloha Monday. Yes. So uh, tell us, I mean, I'm sure with this pandemic, it's just a lot more difficult to recruit teachers. Absolutely it is. I mean, we're talking about classrooms going virtual. Um, so at this point in time, you know, this would be the height of the DOE's teacher recruitment season, meaning mainland trips and on-site visits to places across the country to woo new teachers to Hawaii. But of course, that can't be done. That cannot be done right now due to the pandemic. So they're turning to a lot of these um, uh, virtual uh, teacher recruitment efforts and um, hopes that um, teachers who were perhaps thinking of leaving the DOE might stay a bit longer. But of course, that's complicated by the fact of this budget currently and what's going to happen with the DOE's budget and ability to retain the staff that it, ar that it already has. Yeah, there's just so much uncertainty. 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, a lot of this is driven by the financial situation. Um, and so teachers, such as the one I featured in today's story, um, doesn't know if he'll have um, his teaching position come come fall. Um, um, this young man named uh, Vinny Baiju was told that his uh, social studies position might not be available next year or that it could be given to someone with higher seniority. And so first-year teachers, in particular newer teachers, I feel are in a bind due to the uncertainty budget climate at their individual schools. Now, this teacher you interviewed, Vinny, I mean, he's Harvard trained. <laughs> right. He, he graduated from Harvard last May, and he was we, when we spoke, um, he had a really interesting story about why he wanted to come to Hawaii to teach. I mean, he's very passionate about history and social studies, and he was telling, telling me about how, um, you know, the complex history of these islands is, is, is a large part of why he wanted to come here and teach young kids. And he's had a remarkable year so far, he was telling me. I mean, despite the challenges of teaching in a virtual environment, he really connected connected with the kids. He said that it's forced him to be a little bit more creative in how he delivers instruction. Some of these classes can be delivered more in seminar format. Some kids are more comfortable um, speaking up in a digital environment. And of course, these are high schoolers, right? So they're a little bit more technologically savvy and can navigate the online environment. But um, from what he was telling me, I mean, the past year has gone exceptionally well for him. And so these are the kinds of young, talented, hardworking, and passionate teachers Hawaii is relying upon and really needs to sort of build out its teacher pipeline in the future but what's happening right now is just this level of uncertainty with the budget and how many of these um, young fresh talent that it can that it can keep I mean we've got them here already right that's half the battle yeah yeah absolutely so um, what what does he plan to do if he doesn't know he's got a job there at a AI high school? Uh, what are his options? Yes, that's a. I mean, that's a. That's a great question, and I think that um, for teachers in his position, I think the key here is flexibility and perhaps a bit of hope <laughs> and optimism. Um, I think that schools are currently still figuring out how to revise their budget in light in light of some optimistic news that the DOE received earlier this year, when um, Governor David Ige um, said that Hawaii. The Hawaii Department of Education would no longer face a 10% um, budget reduction, but a 2.5% budget reduction. So that means more money going down to the schools. And Superintendent Christina Kishimoto has been adamant that that extra or that um, saved money will go down to the school level. So what does that mean for schools? That means principals have a lot more leeway and flexibility in how to budget out their next school year. So I'd imagine that many teachers who are told that their position might not be available next year are going to get some better news in the weeks ahead. But of course, this depends from school to school. And your article uh, examined uh, uh, something uh, different, and that's the international recruitment of teachers. Talk about that. Sure, sure. Yeah, this is a very interesting component of the DOE's teacher recruitment strategy. Um, what they have done is now they're looking internationally abroad for highly qualified teachers to come and teach. Now, this was uh, an initiative that was set into motion before the pandemic, of course. And um, I believe uh, about a year ago is when they started really making offers to teachers from the Philippines to come here and teach. Now, they successfully brought four teachers from the Philippines over, the DOE did. Three of them are um, teaching at Lanai Elementary, and one of them, I understand, is teaching in the Nanakuli complex area. And so um, I spoke to one of the um, Filipina teachers who's now on Lanai, and she was kind of detailing her experience of coming over, how, you know, her arrival was delayed by the pandemic, but she's gotten a chance to connect with her kids um, out there on that island. And I think this is one of the strategies that DOE is going to be using moving forward to plug the teacher shortage gap. Right, and I, I know that you know we can use technology also to uh, provide training for a lot of these uh, folks who want to be, uh, become full-time teachers in the DOE. So, uh, yeah, lo lots of uh, opportunities to rethink what we're doing. But thanks so much, Suvan. Sure thing. Thank you. That was reporter Suvon Lee with today's Reality Check. Read her story at civilbeat.org.
food. It's essential for survival, but too much or too little can cause a whole host of problems. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an expert about the latest in the diagnosis and treatment of eating disorders. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. With the COVID-19 pandemic stretching into 2021, various agencies are continuing their programs to help those financially impacted in our state. One of them is a rental assistance program for Native Hawaiians, similar to one offered by Aloha United Way last year. The Conversations Russell Subiono spoke with the two local agencies administering this year's program about who it helps and its impact thus far. Earlier this month, the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement launched an emergency rental relief program in partnership with the Department of Hawaiian Homelands. The program is for certain Native Hawaiian renters having difficulties meeting housing expenses as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. The U.S. Department of Treasury allocated over $2 million for the program as part of the 2021 Consolidated Appropriations Act. Kuhio Lewis is the president and CEO of the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement, the organization administering the program. I spoke with him about it. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the Rental Relief Program does? The Rent Relief Program that is being uh, offered through the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement is a partnership with the Department of Hawaiian Homelands, and it's part of the recent Appropriations Act that came down from Congress, which allocated $2.4 million specifically to waitlisters or people that are beneficiaries of the, of the Department of Hawaiian Homelands or the Hawaiian Homes Commission Act. It covers rent. It covers utilities. That includes electric, gas, water, sewer. Um, it, and, and it also allows you to go back for those that are in arrears or they're behind on payments all the way to March 2020. So this program is really a means to help stabilize uh, those that have been impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. I've read that there's about 28,000 people on the Hawaiian Homes waiting list. And I've also read that your organization estimates that nearly 20% of them may qualify for this rental assistance. How many people do you estimate could potentially be eligible for this assistance? So to date, we've already received over 500 applications. These are applications that are in various stages of the process. and we anticipate there's thousands more that are qualified for the program. It is a statewide program. You have to be a resident of the state of Hawaii. So everyone in the state, if you are renting and you're on the wait list, you should be looking at this program, if, especially if you're, you've been negatively impacted by the pandemic. That could be loss of job. That could be that you have an increase of living because of the pandemic. All of those types of hardships would qualify you. But we anticipate thousands coming in the door, and the Department of Fine Homelands has uh, said that if this, these, this pot of money isn't enough for those that need help, they will revisit and look at how they can continue to support families. And so to, to qualify for this assistance, there's some basic qualifications. Uh, among them are uh, to be on the Hawaiian Homes applicant waiting list or an undivided interest lessee in the state of Hawaii. Uh, you also have to be rent, uh, renting housing in the state of Hawaii, 18 years or older, provide income lost due to basically uh, some documentation that you lost uh, income due to unemployment. Uh, And then there's some income qualifications that the applicant would also have to meet. Can you kind of go a little bit, a little bit more in general on, on the qualifications? So in order to qualify for the program, you have to be on the DHHL wait list or an undivided interest lessee. In other words, you've been awarded land with no house. It's just you, you were awarded land uh, and, you're, and you're currently renting. So that's another requirement is you have to be renting in the state of Hawaii. You have to be 18 years of older and you have to prove that you've been facing hardship. could be unemployed. It could be reduction in income. It could be increase in costs because everybody's now at home. Uh, if, you, if you're experiencing homelessness or any kind of housing instability, you should be looking at this program. The biggest qualifier is that you're under 80% AMI. So to give you an example of what 80% AMI is, if you have four people living in your house and you make less than $100,000 a year and you're in Honolulu County, you would qualify for this program. If you're on Kauai and you have four people living in your house, you're looking at $78,000 as an annual income for your house. 
So those are the qualifying criteria, things that we look for. We're going to ask for your ID. We're going to ask for passage of bills, maybe proof of your unemployment, uh, eviction notices, or just behind on your rent. Um, you know, to verify that you're within that income bracket, we're also going to look at some income statement. Uh, right now, we're averaging about seven days to approve an application, so you could get help within that, that period. The rental assistance program started on February 8th. What's the window look like? How long will the program be open for? Well, I can tell you what's been approved already is approximately $140,000. It's already been approved. Uh, we're just waiting to disperse the funds at this point. Um, so we are already about 5% uh, approval of what is available. The money's going quick, so I want to encourage everyone to apply. Take advantage of this resource. Everyone that qualifies, take advantage of the resource. DHHL is monitoring the program. If there's additional need, they've, made, uh, they've said that they'd come in with additional resources to support our beneficiaries. That's great. It, it sounds like this program uh, will really help a lot of, uh, of our local people all across the state. You know, housing is so important. There's already a limited supply. So it sounds like this is something that can really help our people and something that they should really start applying for. Yep, absolutely. It's very simple to apply. It's online, you know, so you can upload your documents uh, and you could call if you need support. But again, this is a relief program. It's to provide relief for those who need it. While this is the first rental assistance program offered by the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement during the pandemic, it isn't for the Department of Hawaiian Homelands. The department partnered with Aloha United Way in May 2020 to offer similar assistance to help Native Hawaiian renters impacted by COVID-19. That program was then extended in August 2020. Tyler Gomes, the deputy to the chair of the Department of Hawaiian Homelands discussed the impact of last year's program. What was the impetus behind the start of the rental assistant program last year? Really, I think there was just a massive need. And at the time that we launched our program, I don't think any of the other programs had launched yet. So there was uh, probably a vacuum in terms of where people could go for assistance. So we I think we're second out of the gate. The city may have beat us, but really there was a massive need from, I think, everyone across the board for assistance because there wasn't a lot of guidance. Um, I know it's only been a year, but it feels like, you know, a decade ago. But at that time, people were looking anywhere really for reassurance, and there was none. We didn't know how long this was going to go on. We didn't know, you know, what the consequences would be for those who were unable to make their rent payments or for renters who were maybe trying to pay their mortgages. So I think the need was the biggest uh, impetus for the department. How does this kind of service fall within the purview of DHHL? Does it fall within the mission? How does it all fit in? The department is more than just an agency to build homes, which I think often it is framed. The discussion is framed in that way. Um, if you look at the larger sort of policy implications, you look back to 1921 when Prince Kuhio championed the bill, rehabilitation of the Native Hawaiian people was the goal. At that time, with I think there were around 20,000 Native Hawaiians in existence and the majority of them living in tenements, uh, the goal was to get them on their feet in uh, a more stable housing situation through a homesteading program. So fast forward 100 years, because this year makes 100 since we signed the act. Um, this absolutely falls within you know, the purview of rehabilitating our people um, in the time that they need it the most in the form of assisting them with their housing needs. I think all of those uh, points speak to why this department exists in the first place. And what kind of response did you get last year in May? Did you get a big response? Is that the reason why it was extended in August? Yeah, so there was a there was a pretty big response initially, and then the market was flooded with uh, rental assistance programs. So I think everyone sort of experienced a calming um, just through the overwhelming availability of resources. But I think in the end of that primary program, pre our current program, I think we were able to assist 139 families um, so over 400, I think, uh, adults and children. And I, to us, that was a really, really uh, big justification for seeing if we could continue the program. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe now there are far fewer programs all competing to provide assistance. So 
Um, I think, you know, I know we're talking about the old program, but I think the new program already has demonstrated a greater demand. Um, so, you know, we were right in our suspicion that the need would continue beyond the ending of our first program. What would you say to our listeners who may qualify for this rental assistance? I think submit an application. Um, there's the only harm is that, you know, it turns out you don't fit one of the qualifications. The actual benefit is if you do fit all five, then there's an opportunity to assist you. Um, and this isn't just for current rent. We can assist with back rent up to last March, current utilities, as well as back utilities to last March. So um, the, the ability to serve is even greater this time around. Um, so if you are listening and you need assistance, either currently paying your existing rent and utilities or back rent and utilities to last March of 2020, um, you can learn more on the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement's website, hawaiiancouncil.org backslash DHHL. That was the conversations of Russell Subiono talking with Kohio Lewis of the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement and Tyler Gomes of the Department of Hawaiian Homelands. That website for the rental assistance program, one more time, hawaiiancouncil.org slash DHHL. is the conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. We'll be hearing from a Hawaii scientist who had a front-row seat on the Perseverance mission. But first, astronomer Christopher Phillips and HBR's Dave Lawrence talk about diagnostic net tests underway on the surface of Mars. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny, very troubled planet, and as usual, we are fortunate to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips to guide us through, and we've got him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be here. So this week's stargazers, look out for the planet Mars in the south after sunset. It will set in west around midnight. The moon this week is passing through its full phase, and so spotting faint objects up there in the big beyond will be very difficult indeed. And you've got us a little wrap-up on an important space development, which we had discussed a while back, and now you've got the uh, Perseverance mission to Mars. Recap and next steps, yes. The NASA rover Perseverance made planetfall last week after a hair-raising descent to the Martian surface, and it is now set to begin its mission. Before it sets off into the dusty Martian landscape, engineers back on Earth need to know that the rover is healthy and happy. This diagnostic period will involve a series of systems and mobility checks that will take several Martian days, or sols, to complete. And how long is a sol compared to an Earth day anyway? Well, it's not that much different, to be honest. A Martian day, or sol, is around 24 hours and 40 minutes long, just a smidge longer than that of a regular day on Earth. And talk about that checklist they got to run down with this thing. Well, it's pretty extensive. But first, the power, thermal, and communications and science systems need to be checked out to determine if they survived the trip to the red planet intact. The extendable mast, or head of the rover that contains the cameras and other instruments, needs to be gently extended, and a quick test drive on the Martian surface is needed before any longer trips are undertaken. And this mission also has another first, a helicopter drone, right? Yeah, and once all the systems look green in about four sols, then the rover will head to an area nicknamed the airfield. And this is where it will deploy the drone called Ingenuity. This helicopter drone will scout out the Martian surface and provide aerial surveillance and science for the rover. And this is going to mean some really wild pictures. Yeah, everything about this mission is upgraded. So the cameras that were installed on the rover and, of course, the helicopter drone are going to be miles better than those in previous Mars missions, which means we are going to see spectacular color shots of the Martian surface and hopefully some video, too. But we'll actually be able to see the helicopter drone take off, yeah? Or you, we don't know that yet. We don't know that yet, and obviously a lot of this actually depends on the weather on Mars, which can be a little bit dicey at times. 
Engineers will want to make sure that the drone can fly unhindered, and this could take several weeks of test flights before the mission proper begins. So I say stay tuned. It's Christopher Phillips and another exciting Stargazer report. Thank you so much. You're all welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. Catch you next week, and you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at HaleakalaRanch.com. That was audio recorded from NASA's control room last Thursday. You know, later that day, the conversations, Savannah Harriman-Pote caught up with Hawaii volcanologist Sarah Fagents about the launch and her work on the latest Mars mission. Everything went absolutely flawlessly. Um, As you can imagine, it was quite tense leading up to the moment, and we were watching the NASA TV live, dreaming of the event, and we had a view of all the people at Mission Control and JPL feeling, I'm sure, as anxious as all of us were, but everything went perfectly, and uh, there was just a lot of relief and elation once we realized we were down on the ground safely in Jezero Crater. And I understand that for some people, yourself included, this landing is a culmination of years of work. I believe you said that you had been working on this mission since 2014. What was it like to wake up this morning and know that today's the day? Oh, it was incredible. Um, You know, back in 2014, when our instrument, the MathCAMZ instrument, was selected, landing date seemed so infinitely far off in the future. So we've, we've been busy working this last seven years or so on the engineering aspects of it and the instrument development, and I've been particularly involved in the, the science aspects of where we're going to go and what we're going to do. But it just it never seemed quite real, you know, and, until here we were today watching the coverage of us actually landing on Mars. It was absolutely thrilling to be part of that. Wow, wow. And can you talk a little bit more about your work with the MassCAMZ? Yeah, I'm a co-investigator on this this instrument team. Um, Jim Bell, who is a former UH student, actually, um, is now a professor at Arizona State. Jim is the principal investigator, and so he collected a a group of scientists to participate in this investigation to help understand the geology of the site that we're looking at, because the goal of the mission is to look for signs of ancient life. And to do that, we really need to understand very well what the geology of the area is. I'm a volcanologist, and I'm most interested in the volcanic units there, because if we, if we can identify a volcanic feature like a lava flow or an asphalt deposit, we can date that feature. We can radiomagically date a sample that we bring back from Mars. And so we'll know exactly when that feature formed, when that lava flow formed, and this will help us tie to a specific point in time all of Martian history. So volcanology is my key interest, but I'm also really excited about looking at these these delta deposits that we see there, these these sedimentary deposits that may contain these these signs of ancient life. Wow. I mean, I think it's hard to comprehend someone who doesn't have that firsthand experience with what those kinds of findings mean. Uh, Mm. The idea that there would be ancient life on Mars. Can you put a little bit more context to that? Like, what what do you mean by life? (laughs) Okay, so um, we are thinking small. When we think about life on other places, I mean, we know life flourished on Earth, and, and we have everything that we see today, which is remarkable and spectacular. But when we look at other bodies like Mars, we know that, that Mars's habitability probably only happened for a very restricted period of time, very early in Mars's history. So it hasn't had as long to initiate and develop and flourish 
like Earth has. But back in that, uh, those early times, billions of years ago now, Mars was warmer and wetter for a limited period of time. Um, and so when we think about life on Mars, we're thinking microbes. We're thinking of microscopic organisms that we may, despite the fact that they lived, potentially lived billions of years ago, we may see the remnants, the, the signs that those, those organisms once existed by looking at, at the rock outcrops and the sediments that we find in Jezero Crater. And I understand in your work, you're looking at other orbiting bodies or other celestial bodies also for similar signs. I believe you're doing work with the moons of Saturn. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm part of an investigation that's looking at Saturn's moon, Titan. Now, Titan is an icy, icy body with a rocky core, um, but most of its outer layers are ice or water, um, and it has, it has a subsurface ocean. And we think that that's another possible habitable niche in our solar system, the fact that we have liquid water underneath a, a, a thick icy crust. It's possible that, that life could arise um, in these subsurface oceans at, for example, Titan and also Europa, which is one of um, Jupiter's satellites. So there's a lot of interest across the, the planetary science community and the astrobiology community of these so-called ocean worlds, these icy moons that contain oceans beneath their frozen surface. I have to say, volcanologist is probably the coolest job title I have ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> How does someone become a volcanologist? Well, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't realize volcanologist was a thing. But what happened for me was I, I went to college with this vague idea that I was interested in understanding the world around me. So geology, looking at the landscape and understanding how the landscape formed. While I was in college, I met a very inspiring professor who worked on planetary science and on volcanoes on different planets. And I ended up doing a senior thesis with him. And that just inspired me. I hadn't really thought about grad school before that. I realized that if I can look at volcanoes on Earth or other planets, that would be the life for me. So I started a PhD uh, with him, working on a comparison of how volcanoes erupt on different planets. So I was comparing um, Earth and Venus and Mars, and they have very different gravities and atmospheres, and, and they really influence how a volcano erupts. And so a few months into grad school with my advisor, he brought me over here to Hawaii. This was back in 1990, to go and look at the volcanoes that we have out here in Hawaii as analogs for volcanic features that we see on different planets. If we can understand how volcanoes work in this very well-understood environment on Earth, we can apply our models, our physics models, our numerical models to other bodies to understand how volcanoes work in different planetary environments with different atmospheres and different gravities. Perhaps you can fact check me on this. My understanding is that Mauna Loa is the largest volcano on Earth. In order to find larger volcanoes, you actually do have to go to Mars. That's true. Yes, <laughs> that, that is definitely true. It, it, Mauna Loa is just awesome. Hawaii is a, an amazing place for, for many reasons. I mean, we can look at the volcanoes for a start, and, and by studying volcanoes here in Hawaii, we can understand planetary volcanoes. And then there are all of the astronaut training that's been done out here in Hawaii or the testing of instruments and, and other mission uh, systems and concepts uh, for analog studies out in Hawaii. For example, the high seas simulation that was over there on Manolo on the big island where they isolated groups of scientists for months at a time to see how isolation affected the ability to get your tasks done if you were on a planetary mission, for example. So Hawaii is, is, is multifaceted in what it can offer to uh, understanding other planets and for planetary exploration, too. And aside from your own work and analysis with the MassCAMZ, what findings from the Perseverance are you most interested in? Well, as, as I mentioned, the, the main, the goal of the mission is to seek signs of ancient life. So I am just super excited to see what we can do to, to seek those signs out. I'm excited to go to the Delta deposits, um, which may have concentrated and preserved biosignatures of, of um, ancient microbial life. Um, I'm excited to be part of the decision-making process of what rocks and soils do we sample that would, would be most likely to contain those biosignatures.
And, and ultimately, the goal is to, to bring back samples that we collect during this mission to Earth in a future mission and study those samples in, in labs on Earth with all of our sophisticated equipment that we have in terrestrial laboratories to, to really um, unravel whether we see biosignatures in those samples. And on that note, if you could just speak to what these findings might mean, not only for the scientific community, but for the general public. Yes, I mean, it's it's a question, isn't it? I think probably everyone on Earth has pondered, is there life out there? Are we truly unique on this planet? Or, or is there somewhere else in our solar system or beyond our solar system that, that hosts life? So so finding any any sign of life, even if it's incredibly primitive, like a little microscopic organism, would... would really expand our understanding of, of our solar system and, and the universe, I think. That was Sarah Fagens, faculty member at the University of Hawaii at Manoa and a co-investigator for the MassCAMSI instruments on the Mars 2020 mission. Check out links on our website for more on the Perseverance. We also plan to hear from a Punahou alum who happened to be in uh, uh, mission control uh, at the time of that launch. And that wraps it up for today. Tomorrow we hear about ag tech and urban farming on the island of Lanai. Seen their greens around town yet? Have a story to share with us? Call or talk back line 808-792-8217. You can tweet us at HI Conversation. Head to our Facebook page and remember that all of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. 